Well, it's been good to sing about the greatness of our God and to reflect on His attributes and His characteristics and His name. And so that's what we're going to be uh, looking at this morning. But I just want to give you a heads up. We're, we're going to go deep today, okay? And uh, in order to go deep, I started looking for a special book to go deep with. And uh, this is a book that my Sophia has. She's going to be two in a, in a week or so. And so I thought that this might be the way to start going deep. This bu- uh, this, the name of this little book is called Don't Push the Button. Don't Push the Button. Maybe you've, maybe you've read this before. If not, you'll be able to see it up there on the screen. So it's a cute little book. Uh, let's, let's start. Let's just read a little bit of this together. So it says, Hi, my name is Larry. Welcome to my book. There's only one rule. Don't push the button. Okay, next page. Seriously, don't even think about it. It does look pretty nice, though. Maybe you should give it a push, right? Just, just one little push. Oh, now I'm yellow. Push it again, push it again. Eek! Now I'm yellow and polka dotted. Push it twice. Ock! Now there's two of me. Push it a whole bunch of times. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Now, isn't that how we treat the commands or the rules of the Bible often? Right? They're like do's and don'ts. They're like the button that's been put there, and we're like, don't touch it. Right? Don't, don't do it. Let me give us all an example that many of us in here in the room would understand, even myself included, that we fall in the trap of of viewing God's commands and rules in this way. Just think for a second about parenting. What do you often say? What do I often say? Do this. Don't do this. And then my beautiful Isabella's here. Oftentimes I get this question. I'm sure you've got it too. Why? Why? And I always said I would never do what my father and mother did. I would never say, because I told you so. Right? But I do. Right? But that is an all-important question for us. Why? Why? You see, there was a group of religious people during Jesus' day, a group of the Jewish religious leaders who would put us all to shame in terms of our external obedience to the do's and the don'ts. And they were called the Pharisees. But before you begin to think, man, I want to follow the example of those Pharisees, listen to some of the things Jesus had to say to them in Matthew chapter 23. He says to them, how terrible for you, or you might know it as woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, You pretenders, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed. You only want to satisfy yourselves. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. Then the outside will also be clean. In case you missed his point here, he makes it abundantly clear in the next one. How terrible for you, O teachers of the law and Pharisees, you pretenders, You are like tombs that are painted white. They look beautiful on the outside, 
but on the inside they are full of bones of the dead. They are also full of other things that are not pure and clean. It is the same with you. On the outside, you seem to be doing everything that is right. But on the inside, you are full of what is wrong. You pretend to be what you are not. You see, Jesus was concerned not just about the external observance of the things that were right, do's and don'ts, but also about the very heart of man, the very being of man from which everything flows. Certainly the commands of God communicate how his people are to live, how we are to walk in wisdom. However, we often disconnect the commands of God from the biblical storyline. I want to repeat that because it's very, very important for where we're going. We often take the commands, the, the, the statutes of God, and we disconnect them from the biblical storyline, and we say, these are do's and these are don'ts. And clearly, the Bible talks about things that we should be doing and things that we should not be doing. But the question is the same as the question that my girls ask. Why? Why, Dad? Why, God? Why do you give us commandments? Is it because God is not fun or against fun? Is it because, like maybe us as parents, we're sticking the muds or fuddy-duddies or all those terms that I learned in Alabama that maybe you don't, you've never even heard of, right? Is it that God is not modern or postmodern or up to our times? Is that why we have commands? Today we will be examining the biblical storyline and asking the all-important question. Why does God give commands to his people? Why does God give commands to his people? And it's my hope that when we get to the end of this sermon and looking in God's Word together, that we'll be able to see that our perspective of God and ourselves determines how we live. You see, our perspective, what we understand, not just a, a mental ascent of who God is and who we are, but an experiential understanding of this covenant relationship that we have together that this will give us an understanding, a perspective that shows us that God is great just as we've been singing this morning and that ourselves have been brought into this covenant relationship together and therefore it determines how we are to live in light of these commands. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19 through Exodus 23. And we're not going to be able to cover all of that passage, but if you would take your copy of God's Word, we believe this is God's Word communicated to us that we might be able to understand Him and understand uh, more about Him. And that is true in all that it says. And as we look at the, continue looking at the book of Exodus, before we jump into this passage, which is sort of in the middle of this narrative that's occurring in the Exodus, 
I want us to remind us about the message or the purpose of the book that is Exodus. Most certainly, it is a historical account of the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt by the hand of God. But there's also so much more to this book than just a historical account that's occurring. And maybe we get a glimpse of that when we realize that the Hebrew name for this book is not Exodus. The, the Greek Septuagint first called this book Exodus, or where we get the, the, the understanding of Exodus. But the Hebrew Bible calls this book, These Are the Names, or for short, Names. Now that sounds awfully strange and awfully odd to name a book after the first couple of words that are found inside this book or inside this, um, this work by Moses. But yet it makes perfect sense when we realize what the book is trying to do. You see, the book begins by referencing the names of the sons of Israel who migrated out of Egypt with Jacob. And it lists all of their names there in chapter 1. In fact, the book is so concerned with names that it makes sure that it tells us the names of the Hebrew midwives who followed after the Lord in not obeying what Pharaoh had to say. We find Moses' name mentioned. We find Moses' father-in-law's name mentioned. We find Moses' wife and his son's name mentioned. We find the names of the patriarchs that God had made even a, a prior covenant with, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But do you know that there is a name that is missing until we get to Exodus chapter 3? And that is the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And in chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses in this burning bush experience whereby God says, my name is, I am who I am, or I bees who I bees. I am the Lord God. I am Yahweh. After it's shared, the Lord takes great care to share his name. Now, oftentimes when we think of a name, we think of identity, right? I am Daniel Bradley Canalejo, right? And for a long time, I did not like my last name, but I love my last name now because I know whether or not somebody knows me just when they call me on the phone and they say, can I speak to Mr. Canalejo, whatever, right? I know what it is. It identifies me. It identifies you. But do you know that there's much more in a name than just identity? Our character who we are. Let me say this name. It's been in the news over the last week. But what comes to mind, an identity or a character? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. The character of the man, right? Franklin Graham, Ann Graham Lotz. These, this name carries something even more than identity. It, it carries the character of who they are. And even more in the, in the Middle East, the understanding of a name and making sure that you don't sully the name of your family is extremely important. 
Here God reveals his name to Moses, and he says, I am going to make my name known. Well, how, oh Lord, how? You see, the signs and the wonders that are done for Moses, the signs and the wonders that are done for Israel while they're in Egypt, the purpose of those signs and wonders is to reveal the name of God, to reveal the very character of who God is. You see, the signs and wonders that are done before Pharaoh and the Egyptians are to answer Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh? You see, the signs and the wonders that are associated with the Exodus and the wilderness testing, all of them are to reveal the character, the name of Yahweh. So as we come today to Sinai, There should be no question in the mind of the Israelites or in the mind of the reader, in our minds, of the character and nature, the attributes of Yahweh. By the end of the book of Exodus, the people of Israel and we as the readers of this inspired text will have a fuller understanding of the manifestation of the name of Yahweh, that he is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the covenant Lord. That is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 19. Look at me at Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. We're going to read this entire passage. Follow along with me, but I want you to be looking and be reminded of the name of Yahweh, his characteristics, as we read through this passage, and then we'll go back through and note some of them. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, They came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord, Yahweh, called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came. And he called all of the elders of the people and set before them all of these words which the Lord Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and they said, All that the Lord Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord God Yahweh. And the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in the thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe in you forever. Then Moses 
told the words of the Lord to the uh, words of the people to the Lord. The Lord Yahweh also said to Moses, "Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day." For on the third day, the Lord God will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. I want us to look for a second at some of the characteristics or attributes or the name of Yahweh that we see just in these 12 verses. First one, look at verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 2. We find that the Lord God is faithful. He is a promise keeper. Now, where do we find that in verse 2? Well, here. Look at what Moses writes. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now, the mountain could be lots of mountains. But this doesn't have to be explained because in Exodus chapter 3, God has already told Moses, when I deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery and bondage, a sign will be given to you. And that sign is that the people will come to this mountain and they will worship. You see, God is a promise keeper. He is faithful to all of his promises. And even here, as it is written, they came to the mountain just as God had promised would occur. But not only is he faithful, look at verse 3. He also communicates, he speaks. He desires to be known by his people. We would be left to make God in our own image unless God revealed himself to us. You see, here God says to Moses, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the sons of Israel, we are no longer allowed to make God in our image for he has revealed himself to us his very nature, his very character. He has communicated him, himself to us as he desires to be known. A theological word for this is called his eminence. God's eminence with us. God's involved with his creation. He's not distant from his creation. No, he is involved in his creation. But not only is he the faithful one, not only is he the one who communicates, but look at verse 4. He is the one who rescues. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems and protects his own. Here God says, you yourselves have seen all the things that I did for the Egyptians. All the signs and all the wonders. And you have seen how I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, the the Israelites did not fly out of Egypt. No, they, they had an arduous task of journeying to Sinai. And they had many more steps along their journey to go to the promised land that God had promised to them. 
So it was not to be easy, but yet they were to constantly remember that it was God, the very God creator and sustainer who redeemed them, who took them out of their bondage, who rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. Not only is he the rescuer, the communicator, the faithful one, but he is also relational. He desires a relationship through covenant with his people. You see, unlike a contract, which is driven by a list of rules and conditions, a covenant is about a relationship. It's about a personal commitment that's being made between the the individuals involved in this covenant, the, the partners in this covenant. And God makes this relationship happen between his people and between himself. Look at verse 5. God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, among all the nations, for all the earth is mine. God is not limited just to the people of Israel. No, the entire world belongs to him. But yet God says to the nation of Israel, you are my own possession. It was interesting as I was looking up this term because it's also found in other places in the Old Testament where it speaks of a king's treasure. You see, the king would own everything in his kingdom. Everything would belong to him. But yet, there might be a special chest or something that would hold his most prized possessions, his most treasured possessions. And here, God says to Israel, you are my own special treasure. Just among all of the earth, That is mine. Not only does God desire a relationship, not only does God rescue, not only does he speak, not only is he faithful, but I want you to see in verse 5 and verse 6 that God has a great, grand plan. He is sovereign ruler over all. Look with me at verse 6. After saying that Israel is his own special treasure among all the earth that is his, we get an understanding of this grand plan in verse 6. And you, Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You see, the, the plan of God was not that Israel just keep Yahweh to itself. No, the plan of God was that they would be a kingdom of priests who would mediate God between them and the nations. They would be a light unto the nations as mediators. They would carry the knowledge and understanding of God's salvation to those who did not know Yahweh. Not only that, they were called to be a holy nation, a nation set apart, a nation that's constituted upon following after what Yahweh has to say. 
This is not new. This mission of God is not new here in verse 6. No, even in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Israel was not for itself. It was God's special treasure to be a light, to be uh, an example, a model of all that God was to all that were watching. And finally, look at verse 10 through verse 12. Another part of the name of God that we find here is that God is holy. There is restricted access to God. There is a conditional approach to God. We must not approach God on our own terms or in a cavalier fashion. No, we are reminded through what is shared here that there is an immeasurable chasm between God, who is holy, and us, who are sinners. And here, God tells Moses that the people must consecrate themselves. They must wash themselves. They must prepare because they are going to come on this third day into the very presence of God himself. To the degree that stones must be set up so that if someone passes, they be put to death, hands not even be laid upon them. You see, we, we spoke of God's eminence, that he is here with us, involved in his creation, but he is also transcendent above all of his creation. He is not like us. He is the creator of heaven and earth, of all things, and to him we bow, for he is sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords. All of that, all of that understanding of who God is, his name, his character, is the biblical storyline that leads us to chapter 20. Maybe the passage that we, or the chapter that we know more or know better than chapter 19. Look at chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. Let's read Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 2. Then God spoke all these words, saying, in the hearing of all the people in Israel, listen to what God says, I am the Lord Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want you to see something here. Yes, we are going to proceed from this verse to the Ten Commandments, or what the Bible calls the Ten Words, but I want you to see this in verse 2, and this is essential to be able to understand the question of why God gives commands. Relationship precedes all the imperatives of responsibility. I want you to note this. Relationship with Yahweh comes before him telling the nation of Israel how they are to live. Because morality cannot be pulled away from an understanding of the one true and living God. 
They go together. Our world would love to say, this is how you should live. But yet, when they have no foundation of who God is, it's the sinking sand. They have nothing to place that upon. We, as believers, as Christ followers, as followers of Yahweh, the one true and living God, we understand that our calling to live, our calling to do, our calling to not do, does not reside in us. No, it resides in our relationship with the one true and living God. You see, these ten words, these ten words are not just do's and do-nots. They are the fabric of our covenantal relationship with God Himself as we are to live. I want you to look at these up on the screen. Maybe you learned these. Maybe you memorized these. Right? You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. These words are the words of the Lord to us in a covenant relationship to His people who are in a covenant relationship with Him. But I want you to note a couple of things about these ten words. First, they are distinct from the rest of the law that God will give Moses to give to the children of Israel. But they are not intended to be exhaustive. You see, they are distinct in that from the rest of the law, they are distinct because they are spoken directly by God, spoken directly to the people, so that they hear, so that they acknowledge that Moses is giving them the oracles of God. They are written by the very finger of God. So therefore, they are distinct. But rather, they're not intended to be exhaustive. Rather, they are the core, the kernel of which all the remaining commands that God gives Moses come forth. If you desire to live by the law, smarter people than me have found that there are 613 commands that are given to Moses. 248 of those are positively stated, do this. 365 of them are negatively stated, do not do this. All of them expand from the core, that is the ten words that we just looked at. The other commands that are found that Moses gives, they provide development and, and comment on and expand upon the meaning of the ten words. They do not contradict. This is the same way that we deal with law today. There are general statements about the law, but then there's particular application of the law to specific instances. That's what we find here in chapter 22 and 23 of Exodus. We find these particular applications of the law occurring. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 through 26, is an expounding 
or an expositing of these very ten words for the new generation that's about to go into the nation or the promised land. Not only is it distinct and not only is it not exhaustive, but the concepts of law and grace are not just found here. They run throughout the Bible. You see, there's, there's no particular dispensation of law contrary to a dispensation of grace. There's no two ways of salvation. See, whether you're the Israelites here in this day or whether you're here present this morning, the way of salvation is the same. It's always been in the trust, belief, clinging to the rescuer, the promised one who is coming to deal with sin. Even as there is law in the garden, when God says, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, even as there is law in the days of Abraham, where in Genesis 26 verse 5 it says, Abraham obeyed God and kept his charge, God's commandments, God's statutes, and God's law, there's always been law. But there's always been grace. God covered the sin of Adam and Eve there in the garden. God said concerning Noah, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of Yahweh. So the concepts of law and grace are not at war together. The law is also not just concerned with external obedience, but likewise concerned with internal observance. Matters of the heart. That last part of these words that God shares, the last of these ten words says, thou shalt not covet or desire. This speaks of a matter of the heart. You see, you might be able to be like the, the Pharisees and take care of all the external observance of those 613 commands. But yet, your heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? As Jeremiah says, except the Lord who searches the heart of man, who knows us laid bare, as the author of Hebrews says. You see, the law gives us an understanding that our sin runs much deeper than just our external abilities to do and not do. But it flows from a heart that is infected by sin. Our internal processor, from a computer standpoint, has been infected by a virus. It cannot be dealt with by us. The final thing I want you to see here about the law, about the commands that are given, is that the law was never intended as a means of salvation or ultimate forgiveness of sin. Rather, the law was given to those who had already been delivered and rescued. Those that were already in a relationship with Yahweh you see, covenant obedience was a response of gratitude for what God had done in delivering His people by showing grace to them. Covenant obedience was saying, this is not a burdensome duty that we take on. No, this is a response of gratitude to God's favor and God's salvation 
that He has poured out upon us. The law communicates that the lives of God's people should, what the lives of God's people should look like for those who are in a covenant relationship or fellowship with Him. We do this because of what He's done, because of who He is, not in order to gain more favor with Him. So let's return to the question that I started with this morning. Why? Why does God give commands to His people? Well, there are three reasons. Three reasons that I see that God gives commands to His people. One, that His people might remember His name, His character, and worship Him alone. There in chapter 20, verse 5, it says that God is a jealous God. Jealous for what is rightfully His. Our worship and adoration of Him alone. He is a just God, righteous in all of His dealings. Righteous in judging sin. But He's also abounding in grace, in loving kindness, in His covenant-keeping love with His people. And the law was to remind His people that they were to worship Him alone. But not only that. The commands of God are to remind His people that they are to model His character to one another as they live in community with one another, as they have families together, as they gather together as a community, they are to be modeling for one another all of the character, all of the nature, all of the aspects of who God is. But that would be just holding it to themselves. It does not stop there. Finally, why does God give commands to His people? He gives commands that His people might model His name to the nations to those who do not yet know Him, to the unbelievers who come in contact with them. This is the mission of Yahweh in having a special treasure by which He communicates Himself to the world. You see, what makes you part of the people of God is not some arbitrary special handshake you see with one another. right? It's not some odd language that you use. No, it is that you are reflecting the very nature and character of God to those who come in contact with you. So how does this apply to us? I mean, this is God communicating to the children of Israel, the Mosaic covenant, the law that is given to Israel that is a constitution for the nation. How does it apply to us who are part of what is called the new covenant? A different covenant that's been made. There are some who would say that we should take God's law and we should impart it and apply it to even our laws here as a nation. They're called theonomists. There are those who would say that we don't have any law and therefore we, we just have freedom to live however we want to live. Free grace movement. It's actually based in a, in a heretical understanding of church history called antinomianism. 
look that one up, would you? I told you we were going deep, right? But you see, that's not right either. You see, I'm convinced, I'm convinced, there's differing opinions here. I'm convinced that the Mosaic law doesn't apply to me because I'm a new covenant. I'm a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ. But before you jump and you say, well, that means, Brad, you can live however you want to live. No, it doesn't. You see, I live according to the law of Christ. I live according to the law that he has communicated about himself. James says that if we were to keep the whole law but fail in one point, we've become guilty of the whole thing. The law during Moses' time, the law that's communicated to Moses is a unified whole. Yes, there might be uh, moral law and ceremonial law and civil law, but yet it's all one, one law. So how am I left without not having law? Look at what Jesus had to say in Matthew 22. He gives us this. He's asked, what is the greatest commandment to be put to the test by one of the lawyers? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Really what he's saying is you shall love the Lord with all of your being. Everything. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who's your neighbor? Who would you want to be neighborly to you? It's the story of the Good Samaritan. On this, Jesus says, hangs the whole law and the prophets. Jesus will say, I give you a new commandment in the farewell discourse in John, that you should love one another. Well, that's not such a new law, but yet understanding that we're to love one another as Christ has loved us is something new. I want you to see the answer to the question why. Why should we obey God's law is the same as it was for Israel. If you still have God's word open, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember the things that God said about the nation of Israel. They were to be his chosen possession. They were to be a royal priesthood. They were to be a holy nation set apart for him. In 1 Peter, and if you had time to study 1 Peter, if we could just plant here, there are so many connections to the Exodus that are occurring in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we just don't have time to go there. But God says to the people through 1 Peter, you are to be holy as I am holy in chapter 1 verse 16. But look at chapter 2 verse 9. He writes, Peter writes, but you, guess who that you includes? Us, New Covenant. But you are a chosen race. Look at this. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. Why, God? Why have we been able to become a part of the people of God and therefore take these titles on? Look at it so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our purpose 
for living according to God's law, according to His commands, is that we might know that He is God alone. That we might communicate and model who He is within our community here at Fellowship of Wildwood. But that we might also be a light unto the nations who still need to know Him. God's plan has not changed. It has not faltered. He has not gone into uh, plan B. No, this has been his plan. But maybe you came here this morning, and maybe, as I've been preaching, you've been thinking about this performance treadmill. How many of you have a, a treadmill or one of those elliptical things? Right? I don't have one, you can probably tell. Uh, but, uh, but the law, we might be able to treat the law sort of like a performance treadmill. If I can only do more in obeying God's law, then I will gain more favor with Him. Do you know that that's a lie from the pit of hell? You see, our favor, our relationship with God does not hinge upon us and our performance. It hinges upon the fact that God has redeemed us. He has chosen us. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, that does not mean that we just live however we want. No, because of what he has done, we graciously follow his commands. Our perspective, our understanding of who God is, who we are, our relationship with him will determine how we live. I want to close this morning with a poem from John Bunyan. John Bunyan lived during the 1600s. And John Bunyan wrote this poem about himself and about what he was feeling concerning the demands of the law versus the need for grace. It's up on the screen for you. Listen to this poem. John Bunyan writes, Run, John, run! The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, and it gives us wings. So thankful for God's grace that he's bestowed upon us, as well as even the children of Israel, in order that we might model his name among ourselves and among the nations. Let us pray. O oh, great God of heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you communicate, Lord, that you are relational, Lord, that you are holy, just, righteous in all of your ways, abounding in loving kindness. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, that you have a grand, sovereign plan by which, Lord, you desired the nations to come and know you. And Lord, just as you used Israel to proclaim your excellencies to the nations, Lord, you desire to use us to proclaim your excellencies to the nations as well. So, Father God, as we seek to worship you alone, as we seek to model 
your name and your character among our community as we seek to model your name and, com- and character to those that do not yet know you in our community and around the world, Lord, would you help us to be bold in proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that truly gives us wings. These things we pray in your name. Amen.